the Scholars in Iron podcast. I was designing a project to empower Northeastern immigrants through powerlifting for social inclusion, for all the things that we stand for. That's what I saw. I looked at powerlifting at the slum and I thought, this is it. This is it. This is the tool where we can build powerful identities for these excluded people. Good morning, and welcome to the Scholars in Iron podcast. I'm your host, Joe, coming to you from outside the nation's capital, right here in the DMV. The objective of Scholars in Iron is very straightforward. It's to associate strength training with intellectual endeavors. On the show, we'll examine the connection between capitalism and CrossFit, philosophy and powerlifting, all to raise some hell and even a few questions. By the end of each episode, We'll get one rep closer to living the phrase, civilize the mind, but make savage the body. Now come on, let's lift. I felt like a failure at the time. That's Dr. Mulia Coutinho and she's anything but a failure. Mulia is a scholar and former elite powerlifter from Brazil. And her story of powerlifting came when the bottom nearly almost fell out. She struggled with suicide, abandoned her work, and in the midst of a sprawling metropolis of Sao Paulo, established a powerlifting gym for poor migrant workers in a slum. And it was there where she found herself, her sense of meaning. And she also found the mafia, corrupt IPF officials, drugs, violence. We spoke about her organizing there, as well as her fascinating look at what she calls body alienation and what the ideal strength gym should look like and for whom it should serve. I was a principal investigator and I had a, a mission to accomplish and I just failed. So I dropped out and after surviving a suicide attempt, you basically have to decide, are you going to complete that and die or build a new life project? I remember that I had felt more clarity when I had been an athlete, a competitive athlete as a teenager. I was a fencer. So I found a gym. I started training and my mind became clearer. At some point, I read something about powerlifting. I didn't even know it existed. I'm one of those cases that had absolutely no contact with the fitness industry. And actually... At some point, I realized there was this thing, powerlifting. I was reading more about how the most malignant part of the fitness industry pushed the isolated guided machines. I viewed it as a marketing strategy. It had nothing to do with health, but because they needed to sell those machines and make fitness facilities more profitable. So I started reading guys like... Garhammer and Stone and understand their controversy with Nautilus and, and the machines, the guided machines. The term powerlifting came across my screen. And I found a powerlifting gym in Sao Paulo. Paraisopolis is a slum, very large slum. Sao Paulo is an immense city. And Paraisopolis is a slum that is crouched in the middle of a very affluent area in the city. So it looks like a medieval citadel. It's fenced. 
to protect the affluent against the poor people. There are 80,000 people living in Paraisópolis, and 80% come from the Northeast. The Northeastern in Brazil are the guys who ran away from famine to the South and actually built Sao Paulo and Rio, and they are the targets of discrimination and oppression. Fascist movements target them and kill them. So I was there, and a lot of things were beginning to make sense again for me. I could make a difference through something I had discovered that was restoring me back through powerlifting. And at the same time, I was there among absolutely excluded people, children, vulnerable children, and I could make a difference. That was my start on powerlifting. And maybe that was the big mistake because I romanticized powerlifting because of this start. Because it was there at a slum where I could actually fight oppression and poverty through powerlifting. I designed a social uh, sports social project and I was embraced by the community and I learned how to lift. Unfortunately, the Federation wars were too disgusting and too powerful and they destroyed the project. So I didn't know. It was just a beautiful sport. You know, the simplicity of the three movements were appealing. I was there and I could make a difference. I didn't know anything that these guys associated with International Powerlifting Federation. The 40 sanctioning bodies fight with each other. At the time, when I was exposed to extreme corruption in developing countries and East European countries, the corruption is a little bit different than here in the United States. For example, here in the United States, I don't think there's any federation that receives big grants from the government just to represent that sport. But in Brazil, the Brazilian Olympic Committee, even from, for the non-Olympic sports, they have very, very wealthy grants that they, they endowments, annual endowments for them. And that feeds a system of corruption that involves, defines Latin America as their governing systems. The governing systems in, in Latin America are a hybrid of um, the formal political system. So you have the legislative branch, the judicial branch and the executive branch and the criminal organizations. Long before other countries had this hybridization, Latin America already had this hybrid system. It's impossible to separate it within the state structure where the formal part of the body and the criminal informal economy part begins. I already knew it <laughs> in theory, but I had the chance to see it in practice. Sports federations are deeply associated with criminal organizations. The whole management of drug dealing <laughs> is actually managed by the federations. The same ones who will apply the drug testing. It was a big shock for me. In one of their meets, the official, we saw they're opening their duffel bags with like dozens of boxes of Anadrol and whatever else you sustain on, whatever else you want. They sold it. They were officials of the Federation. They were the guys that were chasing. And that was when I broke up with, with them and never, never connected with them again. They did threaten me personally. Threatening your life in, in Brazil is really common. I mean, if you don't shut up, we're going to kill you. Um, <laughs> to the point that 
you don't even take that so seriously. Maybe I should. I don't know. I witnessed two dark things. And I tried one federation after the other. Oh, this one is going to be better because they all realized who I was. I was an asset. First of all, uh, the IPF people who wanted to overthrow the IPF people in power in Brazil were using me because, well, I could speak languages. I could speak in French to the to the people in, in Geneva. I could speak English. I could speak German. I could, I could speak languages. So I was the big asset. And of course, I was the target of the ones in power. And yeah, it, it, it got ugly. For most of human civilization, physical strength has been our primary means for us to organize and interact with the world around us. It allows us to fashion objects from organic or inorganic matter, to kill other animals for our protein needs, or to grow vegetables to sustain our diets at large. Yet modern industry has, for the most part, eliminated the need for manual labor, especially in countries like the United States. And, according to a Bureau of Labor Statistics report dated May of 2018, office jobs are now the fourth largest occupation of the U.S. economy, just below cashiers and service workers. So, what would the consequences of spending 8 to 10 hours every day in a seat, moving for maybe minutes at a time, have on our bodies? One aspect is what Morelia calls body alienation, or the idea that we no longer know how to use our bodies the way they were designed evolutionarily. We spoke about body alienation, and what might the ideal strength gym of the future look like, in order to ensure that our species doesn't continue to lose touch with our bodies from long days at the office. There's something I've been calling body alienation. In industrial societies, body alienation is a process that takes place as soon as the child is socialized in school and in chairs. The most basic movement of the human body, which is full flexion and extension of the lower limbs, also called the squat, is cut in half. In industrial societies, we have elderly people with locomotory problems and wheelchairs that we don't find in traditional societies where everybody squats till they die. Body alienation also cuts the memory of basic movement patterns. People forget what it was to squat. So all the courses that I taught, most of them were courses for coaches. But believe it or not, some coaches were as alienated as anybody else. So in my mind, an institutional aspect comes first, maybe because of my sociological training. It would be either government, state-owned, or a nonprofit, or community-owned, but not for-profit. Because if it is for-profit and big, it will stray away from the basic objective, which is to confront the negative health hazardous tendencies of the market economy in activity. So these places have to promote some basic things, body alienation, which is the process by which humans are cut from their basic human movement patterns through socialization in artificial or industrialized environments, like sitting, standing, not moving a lot, and things like that. But the ideal strength environment has to deal with that. It has to promote memory. The person has to remember a time in their life 
when they squatted, when the movement, the basic human movement of fully flexing and extending the lower limbs was present in their life, when they were babies. They have to remember a time when walking around, moving, was part of their existence. Children don't separate learning from moving. It's a complementary process. In child development, up to a certain age, the cognitive development and the motor development are combined. And that's what we have to promote on people who are chronically inactive. If we put a chronically inactive person in front of something that requires a lot of coordination. All we're going to do is promote fear and even injury. Their motor cortex is not capable of dealing with all the overwhelming amount of stimulation that a compound movement represents. It's a slow process. This environment has to be hospital for the people who are either completely chronically inactive, have been inactive for as long as they can remember, so they don't know how to sit down on the floor. Or they are obese, they have serious issues, they're not going to sit down on the floor. Because if they do, they don't get up again. Or are disabled or old. This is the majority of people who are victimized in society by the inactivity epidemic. So how I see this environment is that it has to be partitioned into several areas where people are free to go about. It's important to integrate the several levels, but there has to be a level where people are encouraged and actually helped into remembering those basic patterns. And this is mostly uh, body weight and body movement. It's the external resistance is going to come later, probably. And there has to be a lot of freedom to people will remember that once upon a time they like to I don't know, skip ropes, you know, they, when they're little girls and then they, they enjoyed it and it may be fun for them to do that. Um, that is not really that easy. A coach to handle a population that is chronically inactive and sick needs a lot of anthropology and sociology. They need to understand how that came to be how these people became the way they are. They don't reacquire their natural strength. That's all we have for today, guys. I just want to thank Dr. Coutinho for a riveting discussion. Music by Robert Slump. For Scholars and Iron, this is Joe, signing off.